In the century in which we live, the Democratic Party has received the support of the electorate only when the party, with absolute clarity, has been the champion of progressive and liberal policies and principles of government. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and occasional members-only bonus content, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Zero Hour, Primary Concerns, The Trump Cast, The Benjamin Dixon Show, and The Jimmy Dore Show. Joining me now is Thomas Frank. Tom Frank is perhaps best known for his book, What's the Matter with Kansas, and his latest book, Listen Liberal, or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People. We talked with Tom about that book when it came out, but there have been a lot of developments since then. So uh, first of all, Thomas Frank, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Secondly, I should tell you, you know, there's been so much going on with the Democratic Party now, um, and it's been uh, it's been so interesting to watch it play out that I did want to get your perspective on it because it seems as if every day we see uh, another story of power shift or debate within the Democratic Party. Uh, we I certainly see every hour, every minute on social media, kind of combat going on between the forces of what might be called centrism or the Clinton-Obama wing of the party and loosely might be called the Sanders or a left wing of the party. Um, and you've been saying for a long time, especially in your latest book, Listen Liberal, that the party has become uh, a party of the elite. Do you feel that that's, that uh, has, is being borne out or challenged or both by the events that have taken place since the Trump election? Um, well, the, the 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 first thing to mention is the Trump election. You know, that's that's the that's what all of these judgments are about, and that was the centrist faction of the Democratic Party that succeeded in losing that election, losing it to the most unpopular and unqualified presidential candidate of all time. And uh, I also want to remind you of one other thing: that the centrist faction of the Democratic Party. Um, this is, you know, who I describe in, in Listen Liberal and how this, how this group came to dominate the Democratic Party, uh, that, that these people sold themselves to Democrats over the years as the winning faction, the faction that would deliver victory. They would sell you out on all these principles. Uh, you know, they'd sell you out in all sorts of ways. Uh, but you know, they, and they would you know forget about the New Deal and forget about what Democrats had traditionally stood for. All that was gone. They were new Democrats, but they would win elections. Right. And, I, uh, yeah. I mean, so, it's, I, I, just to jump in for a second, I think that's a great point. I mean, I think one, uh, you know, they they always said, "Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good." With the with the uh, that was Bill Clinton's favorite line, meaning don't let your purism prevent you from winning. So okay, I know, I know, I know, I know. Uh, How about letting the bad be the enemy of the good? Right. I mean, with Bill Bill Clinton. I mean, this is a guy. You remember the uh, you read Listen Liberal when it first came out, right? I mean, it's, it now it's out in paperback, right? So now it's it's all affordable and everything. But a, a big part of Listen Liberal is concerned with the legacy of the Bill Clinton years, right. and uh, I mean, this guy. You know, he basically accomplished the Reagan agenda. He he got things done that the Republicans never dreamed of getting done. Uh, NAFTA was a Republican trade agreement that they couldn't pass through Congress. Welfare reform was a you know, big Republican proposal. Bank deregulation. Republicans had wanted this forever, but Reagan couldn't get it done. Clinton got it done. In all, in all three of these cases, and many more, like the balanced budget, you know, uh, telecom deregulation, he accomplished the conservative agenda. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, what the mass incarceration bill in 2004 accomplished the conservative agenda in ways that the that the Republicans themselves could never have could never have achieved. Now, whether that's I don't know if that's making the uh, you know the, the the good the enemy of what did you say the perfect the right enemy, well, that the was built. I mean, it's just a sophistry. It means nothing. I mean, right. if you look at what the guy actually did, 
Uh, it's 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 lamentable. It's you know, yeah, disastrous. And, no, that was his favorite line. Whenever somebody would say, "Gee, we really ought to fight for like helping people," <laughs> yeah, we ought to not deregulate Wall Street. <laughs> he would say, "Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good." To which my yeah. answer was always, uh, and vice versa too. You know, I mean, don't aim, don't always aim lower because you'll keep going lower. Uh, and as long as we're talking about accomplishing the Republican agenda, Thomas Frank. Uh, that leads to, in a sense, uh, to the Affordable Care Act and the fact that yeah. some of the core provisions of the Affordable Care Act were the Republican, uh, originally proposed as Republican alternatives to, uh, let's say, Medicare for All or even Hillary Clinton's yep. original proposal. And now, I want your thoughts on this, Tom, very much. Yes, well, that's, uh, that, that's, uh, it's, that's entirely fair. The Affordable Care Act began as a Heritage Foundation, a counterproposal to, um, uh, you know, to, to, to health care in the early 90s. And then we saw it in Massachusetts as Romney Care. And, right. it, so in, and then it, of course, gets uh, passed into law by a Democratic Congress with a Democratic president with almost every Republican in Congress opposing it, <laughs> of right. course. And, and the, uh, you know, you, but you can see what I'm describing here when you look at the continuity from Bill Clinton to, to something like that, and that is that the, the Democrats really have become the Republicans of old, um, sort of like, uh, 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 you know, well, I don't want to say Eisenhower Republicans because that's too liberal for them. Right. But you look at Obama's yeah. other, other – uh, the, the big moments of President Obama's term in office, and they were all, I mean, one way of looking at them is to say they were half measures or that he didn't, you know, he didn't go far enough. But another way of looking at them is just to say, well, he ruled like a Republican would, only like with Wall Street, you know, where he didn't didn't punish anybody, he didn't, didn't roll back the bailouts, um, didn't do any of the things that a traditional Democrat would have done. But he also didn't do things that a traditional Republican would have done. A Republican, his predecessor, George W. Bush, actually prosecuted the guys at Enron. Right. I was just going to uh, say Obama that. didn't yeah. do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. George Bush's dad prosecuted uh, thousands of bankers during the SNL uh, fiasco. Uh, Obama didn't do that. You know, uh, he wasn't even as tough as a Republican, let alone, you know, a Franklin Roosevelt sort of uh, figure. And then you so, have, then you have Tom, Tom Frank, then you have what I think was an, is an interesting kind of like final era, you know, final act plot twist. Like, you know, when the hand comes out of the grave in the final scene, when, when it comes to affordable, the Affordable Care Act, which is, when the Republicans decide to quote unquote repeal and replace, what they really <laughs> they came up with it, now, yeah. it didn't pass, but the so-called Trump care bill that they're, they're about to take another uh, attempt at uh, was really different from the Affordable Care Act in certain ways, as certainly worse, but but it, it it contained some of the same political philosophy: tax breaks for this, and and uh, you know a certain amount of uh, of benefit tweaking. So it almost seemed to me a difference in degree, but not a fundamental philosophical difference. After all of that, I know. I know. Well, and Trump and the Republicans have been railing against it since the day it was passed, and then he gets into office and he's like, "Hey, this isn't so bad." <laughs> you know, once it's all explained to him, but that's that's so typical of Trump that he he didn't really understand, you know, so many of the things he was campaigning on. He had no idea what he was even talking about. Yeah, very typical. I, I it's it's though, also really depressing. But the guy, one more little twist sure. for you. He succeeded in defeating Hillary Clinton in many ways by using old school democratic language, uh, you know, uh, faking the Franklin Roosevelt language, uh, pretending to care about what he called the forgotten, right. you know, forgotten, uh, the forgotten man and the forgotten woman, um, you know, uh, pretending to be on the side of hard bitten workers and in the deindustrialized zones. You know, he pretended to, to be an old school Democrat and people found that more attractive in a lot of ways than what Hillary was offering. Which, uh, which included going to West Virginia and saying those coal jobs aren't coming back. Yeah, so that, they're not coming back. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah. and, 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 and by the way, when she did that also condemning the sort of, um, you know, intelligentsia of the democratic party to 
have to try to come up with an explanation for that for the next four years and like you know turn that into the party's like uh, you know reason for existence because we understand things like the, you know the coal is going away and we know all about automation and this sort of thing and and everybody else doesn't it, and it's just it's just so ugly what what has happened. Yeah, and I want to talk about, there are two areas I want to make sure we have time to get into. Thomas Frank, author of Listen Liberal, which is now on paperback. Uh, one of them, uh, because I don't have a therapist anymore, okay, so I have to talk to you about these things. Uh, <laughs> one is, and you just touched on it, the, um, the, uh, the sense of uh, not only uh, superiority, but almost dismissive superiority, typified by a lot of people who lined up behind Hillary Clinton, who basically not only said, I disagree with you on this policy, let's say, whether it's Medicare for all or anything else, but I disagree with you with a level of contempt that is essentially tribal. That is, I disagree with you. Paul Krugman, for example, wrote a piece about uh, Gerald Friedman, uh, an economist at the University of Massachusetts who wrote uh, an analysis of Bernie Sanders' uh, economic agenda that said it would cause substantial growth. Now, that's classic Keynesian interpretation of what yeah, Bernie would yeah. do. Jerry I remember Friedman, the dispute, yeah. Yeah, Jerry Friedman, who says he supported Hillary Clinton and said it at the time, Krugman and others responded with this. Krugman was saying, um, oh, let's say you're an economist at a nowhere university, and I'm paraphrasing, but not by much, and nobody knows you and nobody cares about you, then in order to desperately get into the inner circle, you'll say or do anything. I mean, didn't it attack him in the most ad hominem way, the most vicious yeah, but, way? Yeah, but wait, that, that's not, at, that for, for Krugman, that's, um, actually, that's, I shouldn't say for Krugman, for a lot of professional economists, that is how you attack someone. This is, um, do you remember the thesis of Listen Liberals that the Democrats, the inner circle of the Democratic Party, the people who run the Democratic Party, are uh, advanced uh, members of the professional class? Uh, these right. are highly educated white collar professionals, and they have internalized the uh, um, the logic, the, the sort of the way of thinking, the way of understanding the world of the professional class, and, and that's what you see in the Democratic Party. You know, you got Hillary Clinton running as a resume candidate. Uh, you know, supposed to be the most qualified candidate of all time. That's her selling point. You know, people don't care about that, but that's how they tried to sell her. And here's Krugman basically drawing the perimeters of, of, uh, of professional acceptability in his newspaper column. Uh, this is this is what professions do. So I I spent a lot of my life in academia. I don't you probably don't know this, but I got a PhD in history and. Uh, you know, at the University of Chicago, I used to spend a lot of time around these kind of people. And this is how professions work, uh, especially academic professions, is with defining who's in and defining who's out. And it, the only thing that's interesting about it is that Krugman is doing it in a, in a, in a newspaper column, you know, written to, supposedly written for the general public. Like why the general public would give a damn about any of that, you know, I, I don't know. But because uh, academics do this sort of thing in private and in uh, academic journals all the time. Well, uh, you know, what's interesting yeah. about that, Tom, that's a great observation. Um, but what's especially interesting about it in the field of economics, which claims to be a science, is that being right, being oh right is not what, what what gets you expelled or prevents your advancement. It's it, it's how close you are to the center. Uh, yes, it, it's are you inside the, uh, the the parameters of the acceptable or are you not? Are you part of the in group or are you not? It's there's a one of the the essays that I relied upon when I was writing Listen Liberal is by James K. Galbraith, who's the sure. son of John Kenneth Galbraith. Um, and he, it's an analysis of how professional economics works and how this discipline manages to define who is, uh, you know, an acceptable expert and who is not, even when the acceptable experts, according to their definition, are constantly wrong, uh, you know, and predict things that never happen and don't see coming all sorts of things that do happen and are, you know, wrong about the real world in all sorts of ways, and yet they manage to uh, uh, control, you know, this, 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 uh, the, this sort of whatever you'd call it, all the, all the legitimacy that goes with being a professional economist. And they and define... This is, this is pretty, a pretty big deal of legitimacy. This is a very big deal. Uh, and, and so he's wondering how they do this. And, and 
it's exactly what you just described. It's it's uh, defining the uh, the uh, you know defining the limits of the acceptable, defining uh, de- defining certain people out. And language determines the limits of the acceptable. You know, I was well, working for Bernie Sanders during the primary, and everybody was outraged when he would talk about policy A or policy B, and he would say, "Well, I just think you got to do, you got to break up uh, the big banks." And yeah. they would say, oh, yeah, it's not that simple, Bernie, in this condescending voice. But I, I, but it, but that's the same I thing. contend... It's in-groups. It's, in it's in-groups. It's in right. Uh, it's in-groups defining who's out. And uh, I look, contend... What Bernie Sanders is advocating was not uh, radical. And I um, contend you know, that language plays a part in that. That if Bernie had said, well, I believe there has to be a certain firewall between certain banking functions that is best established through this, that is kind of a linguistic code switching... Yeah, uh, and, and so that 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 may have worked, but a big part of the problem is Bernie himself. That he is not part of the cool kids club, right? Um, and, and he's always been outside, and he still is. And by the way, I, I say this as an admirer of Bernie Sanders, and um, you know, as someone that, that actually voted for him in the Democratic primaries, and uh, the way they treat him, the contempt with which uh, these people treat him is remarkable. And by the way, it goes on to this day. There was a story, oh, I'm forgetting where I saw it, but it was during the campaign where it was written by some Democratic insider uh, explaining why Bernie Sanders was unacceptable. And they said, you know, his ideas are not radical. His ideas aren't strange. uh, His ideas are even good ones. But we in the, you know, the in-group, the Democratic in-group, don't talk that way. It's sort of what you're saying. Yeah. He, he uses the wrong the wrong terms to describe these things, and he's not. But but most importantly, it's just simply that he is not part of our set. He and his supporters, he and his followers, he and his advisors are not part of our group. And that's uh, I mean that seems trivial and stupid, but I'm I'm here to tell you if you are listening outside of Washington D.C., that is how Washington works. And that is also how Democrats lose. And <laughs> yeah, no kidding, because they can never see this. Right, they're so deep inside of it because it's they themselves. This is how they think, and yeah. they can't see that, that that you know that this how repugnant this is to the rest of the country. Well, and in the time honored phrase, and we're going to have to end it with this, but in the time honored phrase, uh, we'll apply it to the Democrats. How's that working out for you? So how's that working for you? I see Democrats struggling very awkwardly to uh, to to like unify the the more populist wing, younger wing of the party, basically, and the and the more establishment wing of the party. And I, you know, I I think they are probably relying too heavily at the moment on the hope that Donald Trump's uh, implodes. Or that, uh, or that revelations about him, uh, and his campaign's ties to Russia or something become the sort of silver bullet to take them, to take him down. And they can kind of reprise what happened in 2006 and eight, where m- for the most part, like you had Obama in 2008, which was a huge boon, but in 2006, they were basically like hanging Republican scandal in the Iraq war around their neck and, and, and letting that do all the work. Um, so I hope that doesn't happen, but I do see things like on his way out of the Senate, Harry Reid reportedly told Elizabeth Warren that she should run for president, which is something that he had done, said to Barack Obama back in 2007, knowing that it would put his own Senate caucus like in at, at, at odds with itself, because I think he thought that Hillary Clinton was not the not the ideal candidate for the moment. If Harry Reid, who's pretty politically astute, is is saying that the Democrats should should try to nominate a candidate who is like Elizabeth Warren, better situated to speak to both wings of the party, then I think that that's a sign that like things are moving both in terms of message, but also in terms of what the, what the coming platform will be in the right direction. Um, and but so I guess, so I guess the big question that becomes, and this to me is the telling question that the Democrats haven't really ever, um, or at least not recently addressed or even acknowledged, which is, you can, I mean, so one way to do this is to have a candidate who in reality and substance serves the interest of the donor class, the corporate donor class, but spouts populist rhetoric. 
And there was an article in 2014 in Politico entitled Why Wall Street Loves Hillary Clinton. And it was basically all of, you know, channeling all of these Wall Street executives saying, look, we know in order for her to win in the post-2008 climate, she's going to have to sound like a populist, probably bash us a little bit. But we're totally fine with that because we know when she gets into uh, power, she's going to be a reliable, you know, kind of politician who's serving the engines of economic growth and not populism. So they kind of gave her a license to wander rhetorically from what their real agenda is in order to, to win the election. Um, but that ultimately is the question that the Democrats had, you know, the choice they made back into the 80s and, and especially early 90s with Bill Clinton and the, the new Democratic Council and all that was, um, you know, are, do you want to be a party that is populist and socialist and based in labor unions and based in, um, you know, very kind of left-wing economic policies that channels resentments about oligarchy? Or do you want to continue to be this party that, that is basically backed by Wall Street and Silicon Valley and the corporate donor class? And for a while, Obama was the unifying figure because he was so good at speaking to both wings and serving both wings and making both sides think that they were getting the actual nourishment that they wanted. Um, but I think that, you know, he's a very singular figure, and especially the 2016 election brought into sharp relief because you had these two very distinct candidates, that, that, actually, that you actually have to make a choice that I don't think that, that anyone's going to be satisfied any longer with kind of rhetorical... Um, placating. And so I do think there's a, a really fundamental question about what the Democratic Party is, is going to be. And I think, you know, it needs to be resolved. And, and the people who run the Democratic Party, who, who are in charge of the Democratic Party, want to continue to adhere to the way that it's been constituted, because that's who funds them, so, is, is service of the donor class. And I, I think until that, you know, until that um, issue is resolved, Democrats are going to continue to have major problems politically and electorally and even within their own party because they're going to continue to be perceived as this party that um, serves a small segment of the population at the expense of everybody else, which is so out of step with the current political climate internationally and, and, and domestically as well. So I want to break that into two, two like separate issues, right? Because like I think that there's the question of what should the Democratic Party do? Because it's the right thing to do morally. Um, and what does the Democratic Party need to do to win? Which I think is a question we don't know the answer to. I think if Cory Booker is the nominee in 2020 or somebody like him or had been the nominee in 2016, just by virtue of being a slightly better candidate than Hillary Clinton, probably would have won and may well, may well win in the next election. Now, that would be a sign that Democrats didn't really take much substantively away from the 2016 election, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they'd be destined to lose it, right? And I think that a lot of the post-election, uh, you know, cr like criticism of the Democratic Party is sort of built on a foundation of confirmation bias, right? Where like, like, the, like people who have actually my, basically my set of policy views, but, but like, are, are very adamant about making those the, the core things that Democrats go after were relieved in a sense that Hillary Clinton lost because it 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 created a a, a structure in which they could say the re, the way for Democrats to win having just suffered this defeat is to move in in my direction and I'm not sure I'm not right, sure let me just interrupt you for mm -hmm. for one second because the, the 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 point about if it had been Cory Booker I guess you probably would agree as well someone like Andrew Cuomo or you know just somebody who doubles down on, on the Clinton ideology and, and approach to politics, but is just without all the baggage that right. she had, would have won. Um, you know, I think that focuses too much on the presidential race, right? And, and not on the widespread nationwide collapse of the Democratic Party, which has a lot of non-ideological components, including voter suppression and gerrymandering and um, a whole bunch of other, you know, process-related causes, but also... You know, the Democratic Party is the party, not just Hillary Clinton, but Cory Booker and Andrew Cuomo and this kind of neoliberalism and backed by Silicon mm -hmm. Valley and backed by Wall Street, um, adversarial to the left, right? Like Obama calls into the French presidential election. He doesn't back the left-wing candidate. He backs the centrist investment banker. That's what the Democratic Party is. That's their persona. That's their approach. And they've gotten slaughtered, not just Hillary Clinton, but across the board. And even though there are other causes... Um, for this, you know, nationwide collapse, like the ones I mentioned and others, certainly 
their messaging has to be fundamentally flawed. Like they're not resonating with voters almost anywhere. So I like I am I try to be extremely careful about over because look I I I like my if I were writing a Democratic platform it would look much more like Bernie Sanders's campaign agenda than than Hillary Clinton's right and I think that that's the direction Democrats should move because I think that that's the morally right posture to take in public policy I think that it's when people who have that view that I have say and also that's the way to win it's there's a little bit of begging the question going on right and i i am not certain that in an election where hillary clinton won the popular vote and democrats gained seats in congress right that you can de- make a clear extrapolation to uh to like what ha- like the decimation of the party in 2010 and 2014 um and you know i think that it's so multivariate you had the, you know, the fact that Obama took over at the at the at the nadir of the economic crisis, and then had a, had like a tumultuous first two years, and the economy hadn't hadn't come back uh, strongly, and so Democrats were completely slaughtered in 2010. I think that that probably explains about half of the problem. Um, and then, you know, is is it the case? Am I, can I be certain that if Barack Obama had governed more like I would have wanted him to, or, or or more like Bernie Sanders would have, that the that the 2010 wipeout wouldn't have happened? I'd like to think so, but I just don't know. And I don't get a, like a lot from, from like Hillary's like more strident critics on the left, a sense that, that they have any doubt that their political analysis of their own policies, uh, like might be, they might be overinterpreting it a little. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I think you're right. There's confirmation bias. There's always a view that, that, um, if something's failing, the reason it's failing isn't because they're doing too much of what you like, but not enough of what you like, right? That's, right. that's always, the natural tendency that we have to analyze things. But at the very least, I guess this is what I would say, is this conversation that you and I are having, right, about in what ways is the Democratic Party fundamentally flawed? Is their messaging wrong? Um, Are they too subservient to a corporate donor class? Is that too obvious? Is that why they're losing? I do think these are not easy questions, and, and, and in part because of these biases that we all bring to the table subjectively, um, about how we want to see things as opposed to how things are actually are. So I think that it is absolutely true, and I agree with you completely, that these are difficult questions. But what I what I really genuinely worry about is that I I almost never hear the this kind of discussion. Um, you know, we we recently did like a an analysis of Rachel Maddow show, um, a quantitative analysis, and and yes, she's just one person, and yes, it's just one show, but it's you know the by far the the most watched cable news program among liberals every day. Um, and there's literally almost no discussion of the type that we're having about what's wrong with the Democratic Party. Why are they failing nationwide? What do they need to do differently? It's all, you know, Jim Comey and Russia and, and um, you know, Michael Flynn. And, and, and I think more broadly, this conversation is lacking. And I think it's very dangerous for Democrats and people on the left not to have this conversation. I agree, but but and and, and uh, that shitty tweet of mine that you uh, that you uh, messaged me about the other day, like I I understand why somebody in Rachel Maddow's position is focusing on the like the central stories about the person who's president now and the things that kind of under- well, just about I got about Russia specifically, right? Like. I think not the central story. That's the problem, right? Not really healthcare, not the Muslim ban, not ICE picking up um, people in all kinds of terrible due process depriving ways, but Russia specifically. Yeah, I, I, I look. I personally try to strike a different balance than that. I write a lot about healthcare, and I, you know, write a lot about the Republican agenda and um, and taxes and so on. And I think that that that's like and Trump's other grifting and corruption, which I think is. In some ways, it's it's right there. You don't need a you don't need an FBI investigation to prove it, right? So so that's me. Rachel Maddow does her thing, but but you know, in an environment where Trump is president, and it's possible that he won the presidency by by colluding with you know FSB to to leak damaging information about Hillary Clinton. Like that's a huge story, and I I can't like any anybody who uh, who like thinks that it's you know reasonable how it's a huge story of evidence emerges proving it's true which is a huge if i agree it's a huge story i agree it ought to be investigated i'm glad the fbi is investigating i'm glad the justice department is investigating 
They just confirmed um, the the deputy attorney general who will serve under Jeff Sessions to recuse himself. So he will now be empowered to conduct that investigation. Both um, Senate Intelligence Committees in the House and the Senate are investigating. The Democrats on the Senate Intelligence Committee are telling everybody it's a real investigation, even the Republicans are committed to it. The House one is a joke. So there are real investigations. And there will, if there's evidence of collusion, it will emerge. Um, but I think that, and, and this is, you know, this is the problem is it's easy for Democrats to sit around talking about all the ways Trump is horrible. And of course, it's important. Trump is actually the president, and that's a legitimate topic. It's a necessary topic of conversation. The problem is, is that unless the Democrats figure out a way to move voters, to reach voters, to convince voters that they understand their lives and are able to make their lives better, until that happens, it doesn't matter how, how bad Trump is. If the Democrats have nothing better to offer and don't fix themselves, they're going to continue to lose. So I'm and not. Sh- yes, they may win in 2018 because Trump implodes, right. or there's a silver bullet, or just the natural cycle of That's politics is that the president's you know party fails in the midterms. Democrats might be really energized. All that might happen, but like anything midterm or long term, in terms of opposing this kind of revanchist white nationalism and an extreme you know kind of isolationism and uber nationalism of the Trump movement, anti-immigration, anti-free trade, all of that. None of that is going to you have to have an answer to that, like a programmatic political answer that is real and that appeals to people, and the Democrats don't have that. My guest today to talk about identity politics is Parker Malloy, a writer at Upworthy who's also contributed to Rolling Stone, Huffington Post, Salon, and The Advocate. She's a frequent and incisive contributor also to that sprawling collaborative magazine known as Twitter. Welcome, Parker. It's really good to be here. Thanks for having me on. So I want to just like blunder right into a delicate matter, which is the question of did the LGBTQ conversations during the election and on the left cost Hillary the election? No. In a word, no. Um, one thing that I find kind of interesting about the the conversation that, you know, we, we saw in the in the wake of the election, there were these editorials that were popping up in, uh, you know, New York Times and, you know, other other places that were talking about how we need to abandon identity politics and we need to fo- abandon social issues and these things as though these are, these are, you know, small boutique type issues. But the truth is that, you know, LGBT issues weren't really discussed a lot during the campaign. I mean, it's it's not as though Hillary Clinton went out and did a an hour long rally where she talked not, about nothing but bathrooms like that didn't happen. Um, she went out and she talked about jobs and she ran ads talking about these things. And maybe the issue was focusing too much on Trump as a destructive force on his own um, and not on her policy positions. But I don't think there's any real evidence that it had anything to do with, you know, talking about LGBT issues or uh, race. Um, or identity politics, simply identity yeah. politics. So, um, but this is clearly a case made, uh, the way that you see the case made by Trumpites is, um, as someone said on my Facebook page, better Trump bring nuclear winter than that we get more initials in LGBTQ. <laughs> and I just thought, like, really, well, I hope that it is a great relief and comfort to you that the initials seem to be capped at five or four in LGBTQ, because uh, I don't know how that's going to help in the bomb shelter, but um, it must mean something. Certainly, Trumpites were furious and loved to evoke as part of their snowflake rhetoric this absolute contempt for identity politics, especially around not race so much as sexuality and gender. Uh, yeah. And, and I, I mean, I think the I think the issue is that those are people whose votes you're not 
you know, Hillary Clinton had no chance of getting anyway, um, unless the Democratic Party completely abandoned, you know, trans issues and, you know, uh, gay rights and stuff like that, unless they completely threw, threw these issues under the bus or just reduced it down to nothing but talking points that, you know, I'm picturing Trump holding a uh, ridiculous, uh, you know, flag that had the Sharpie writing LGBTs for Trump, uh, you know, <laughs> where it's like it, do- it doesn't mean anything, but it's just kind of like, a hey, look, I acknowledged you. You know, there were so many of th- those posts where it was like during Trump's acceptance speech at the at the convention when he he said lgbtq you know he he kind of stumbled on that but there were posts that came out the day in the days that followed that were asking essentially okay well hey he acknowledged you isn't that good enough no yeah (laughs) as we can see from the actions that he's actually taking as president no simply saying something doesn't doesn't actually equal policy that helps us but you can't like I, I don't think that we could, I don't think that the right path for uh, the Democratic Party or for progressives is to abandon these issues that get lumped into identity politics, because so many of them have, uh, you know, an impact that goes far beyond just that group, you know, hearing, being able to use the bathroom or something. You know, we talk about trans, you know, trans people having protections that allow them to use the bathroom as being a big controversial thing. And it might seem kind of ridiculous. You you look at this and you go, oh, it's just a bathroom. Isn't it kind of absurd that we're focusing on bathrooms all this much? Yes, it is. But the reason that it's absurd is that when you tell trans people that they might be arrested for walking into a bathroom or that they might be denied access to any bathroom or fired for being trans, or denied housing for being trans, you're not just telling them they can't use the bathroom. You're telling them that they are not welcome in in society as a whole. So while it looks like a boutique issue, while it looks like a small issue that doesn't matter, the Democrats are doing what they can. They're doing the bare minimum, which is good. Mm-hmm. I think if we take a, step, take a step back on that and say, hey, who are we to say that we should you know, fight for the rights of this group or that group, then that's, we're we're caving to the center, which I find really interesting when we look at the conversation happening on the left, there, there's a push on from people on the left who are saying abandon identity politics, you know, focus on economic issues. Well, these are all economic issues. Gender is an economic issue. Abortion is an economic issue. You know, we, we can't, we can't really pick and choose if we want to move left. I tried this a while back when, when the Republicans were pushing the American Health Care Act. I went to Hillary Clinton's campaign website, which is still up, and I took the I took all the information that was that she put under health care reform and I was like, these are some good ideas that we should we should push for now. And I saw people from across, you know, Bernie supporters, Hillary supporters, like retweeting it saying, yeah, this is a great idea. And then I followed that up by saying, you don't really want to know where I got this from, you know, <laughs> and then I've, I eventually shared it. But it's there, there, there are sort of these blinders that go on there. And when people actually read the policies that Hillary Clinton was put putting out there, you know, not some not what she said 10 years ago or 20 years ago and not, you know, what you think she might do, but what she actually ran on, it was it was a very, it was a progressive platform. It wasn't perfect by any means, but the policy was fine. The salesmanship, that is what might have been off. You know, and you could say, well, she should have gone to Wisconsin. Sure, that's different. That's fine. But when it, when it comes to, when it comes to saying that the solution based on no evidence is to try to push these smaller groups of people, you know, trans people or gay people, uh, you know, to try to push them out of the conversation completely, I find that to be disingenuous because it's not it's not based on any data in North Carolina. The sole reason that their governor lost really comes down to the fact that, you know, he pushed this really awful anti-trans, anti-LGBT law and he supported it. And people of North Carolina were saying that's not cool. And now after the election, they wound up replacing it with something that's almost just as bad. But. Still, the point is that 
that was the one state where identity politics, specifically LGBTQ identity politics, were front and center. And the Republican candidate lost. So, and the Democratic candidate ran on repealing that bill. So, I mean, this is one of those things where I don't see how that translates. You know, that's a state that Trump won. You know, I don't see how how this feeds a larger narrative that identity politics are somehow poisonous. I mean, you know, I, I, I think that two sort of interesting issues is are at play here. One of them is one of those is reminds me of what of Hillary's major epigram, which is um, that women's rights are human rights, which, you know, on the face of it doesn't sound that exciting. But of course, you know, trans economics are economics. LGBTQ economics are economics, every bit as the the slightly arcane, frankly, economics of of coal miners. So it might be that the identity politics belongs to or the the more precise issues belong to the other side. And in Wisconsin, they might have needed some attention. But to say on the left for uh, the Bernie Sanders types that this is these are like to universalize from the experience of a very regional experience of Wisconsin, uh, you know, unemployed man that might have worked in the labor movement during the labor movement, but it doesn't, it doesn't, as you say, work now. So that's the first one. The second one that interests me and we need to wrap up, but the second one is that the bathroom issue is also in a weird way contextualized by the right that there's sort of a nice shock factor in finding the thing that will make you most squeamish. I remember when Ger- Geraldine Ferraro was running with Walter Mondale as, as his vice presidential candidate, and there was a question, a long conversation about what would happen if she was a heartbeat away from the pregnancy and she went, quote, on the rag. Wouldn't she bomb Russia because she got her period? And there was so much worry about that. Of course, now we have a male president who seems to be consistently on the rag. I really worry about his hormonal fluctuations vis-a-vis nuclear war. But um, that conversation was the one that somehow got people involved. And the bathroom thing has always been this kind of red herring and proxy just for ordinary homophobia. Yeah. and Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's an argument that goes back decades. You know, the the argument that, you know, there were these old PSAs that were just like, stay away from, you know, bathrooms, gay people go in there and they, uh, they'll attack your child. And that's why we need to discriminate against gay people. And that was horrible and terrible. And now that argument has been brought to, you know, specifically target trans people. And the, the real issue is it was after the Supreme Court's decision about marriage equality that a lot of the groups that had been focusing so much on fighting marriage equality, realized that that is not a fight they can win anymore. So they turn their focus to bathrooms. That's why you have organizations like the National Organization for Marriage and, you know, a lot of these other right-wing groups that had been previously fighting to restrict marriage issues. They, they've recently taken aim at trans issues specifically and attacking trans people and fighting back that way. So, I mean, that's why there's been all this issue. It's not that Democrats have been pushing this, you know, pushing things uh, as fast as many trans people would like them to. It's that Republicans have taken this this action and started an all out assault on trans rights to where Democrats then have to decide whether they want to stand up for them or not. So they're being they're being put in a defensive position. And the the only option is to let Republicans just trample trans people, you know, or to stand up for them and then get accused of, you know, prioritizing identity politics over anything else. Let's talk about the B-side of her argument, of Anna March's argument in the article that says, bye-bye, Bernie. He's not fit to be captain of the Democratic ship if he can't stop chasing the great white male. 
the B side of her argument is that Bernie Sanders completely brushes off identity politics. And she said that in regards to uh, economic populism and what we are, this is directly from her article. She says, quote, economic populism and what are commonly erroneously and dismissively referred to as social issues, such as reproductive rights, immigration reform and civil rights for people of color. Those ha who have disabilities and people of all faith are indivisible. Sanders routinely demonstrates his own lack of progressive values by dividing them. And I just want to highlight the comment that I put here. You're not going to, be able to see it, but that's bullshit, Anna. Bullshit. Bernie Sanders has routinely. Why the hell do we even have to have this conversation anymore? The primaries are over. The election is over. Donald Trump is the president. Why are you even bringing this up? I love it when people say progressives need to move on. I would be glad to never have this conversation again, but you have neoliberal shields who can't help but to put out this crap on a regular basis, week in, week out. I would love to never have to relitigate the 2016 primaries or elections ever again. But if people keep putting out things that are disingenuous, hypocritical and factually untrue and logically untrue or logically inconsistent, then I have no choice to respond. So here's our second. This is our second argument that Bernie Sanders divides economics from identity. Now, I don't have to give this caveat, but I will. Bernie Sanders is so stuck in his ways and has the same speech that he's been doing for the last 30 years that he has not refined his language, but he has clearly demonstrated time and time and again, rally after rally, conversation after conversation, email after email, press release after press release, that he understands the necessity of communicating the issue of economics and race simultaneously. The irony of this particular portion of her argument, which has been parroted and, and, and recycled by everyone from the Wall Street Journal, from, from not the Wall Street Journal, but the Washington Post, all the way down to Salon.com. The, 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 the problem with it is that the irony, rather, is that these are the very people who do not want us to talk about the intersection of economics and race. They want us to talk about race. They want us to talk about identity. They want us to talk about all those things. But the minute we decide to talk about economics, oh, we're, 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 we're talking about issues that are not important to uh, race. Case in point, Hillary Clinton in the election saying, if we break up all the banks today, will that fix racism? First of all, this is fallacious at best, right? But, but a, 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 a humongous red herring to deflect and to and to to uh, move the conversation off the original target. However, you, 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 it misses its two things simultaneously. It misses the the inherent connection, the interconnectivity between race and economics that exists in the United States from the inception of this country. That's number one. But number two, it's an intentional deflection to keep us from ever talking about the intersectionality of economics and the way that economics plays in every bit of racism that we've had in the United States from the beginning. The way economics plays into the decision to have an abortion or not. The, 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 the reason that people, uh, one of the number one reasons, according to the Guttenmacher Institute, that women get abortions, and it blew me away, was because just economics, they can't afford it. It's not because there's some type of, uh, and, and this is ridiculous coming from Republican talking points, that it's just some type of um, debauchery and, and, and irresponsible women. These are, sometimes these are married women who, who cannot afford to have a child. And so they seek after an abortion. So even on the issue of a woman's right to choose, economics plays a tremendous part in it. And this is the factor that has been missing from the conversation for so long. We will talk about race, but we will not talk about how race is inextricably tied to economics in the United States. We'll talk about abortion rights, but we will not talk about the fact that the number one reason, uh, according to the Guttmacher Institute, that women get abortion is because of economic instability. And so Bernie Sanders has been, and I'm so tired. I'm so, so tired of having to even say Bernie Sanders' name because I'm tired of having to demonstrate this point time and time again. This should be settled. Let it forever be settled after this, which it won't be, but damn it, I'll try. Bernie Sanders has brought into the conversation for the first time in a long time the relevancy of economics to race to, to abortion rights, to LGBTQ rights, to every intersection that we're concerned about. The intersection that has been erased 
for at least the last 30 years of the Democratic Party has been class. That's what they don't want to talk about because you cannot talk about that without talking about the relationship between Wall Street and, to be so cliche, Main Street. I want to talk about this gentleman. That's FDRski. And uh, this was written, by the way, by uh, Michael Moore wrote this about FDR. He said, when when President Franklin D. Roosevelt made plans to run for a third term in 1940, that's this guy, most popular president in the history of our country. (laughs) He, He brought us Social Security, the New Deal, put money in the pockets of workers, saved capitalism. Pie in the sky guy. Pie in the sky. And they elected him uh, president until he died. That's what happens when you legislate with the people in mind instead of the donor class in mind. So, um, So when he was deciding to run for a third term, He'd wanted to drop his vice president, which is a guy named John Nance Garner. Because his vice president was too conservative and was working against him. Well, here's what it says here. It says, both because Garner disapproved of Roosevelt running again. His vice president disapproved of FDR running again. And Garner's opposition to much of the New Deal. So instead, Roosevelt chose Secretary of Agriculture Henry Wallace as his vice president. That's who he wanted. So I guess things were different back then. Like you had to get voted on by the delegates, right? You couldn't just pick your vice president. They had to like okay it. That's what it seems like to me back then, Ski, because look what happened. However, many of Garner's fellow conservative Democrats, including the party's reactionary wing based in the South, despised Henry Wallace for his liberalism and attempted to block his nomination at the convention before Roosevelt's arrival. The the book American Dreamer, A Life of Henry A. Wallace, describes what happened next. Do you want to know what happened next? FDR sent a frickin' letter to the convention. This was the letter that he had written. You want to hear it? Mm-hmm. And it should have been. It could be written today, and should be written today, which is why I'm going to read it today on the show because everybody, the electorate, and the elected Democrats need to hear this. Uh, here it is: Franklin D. Roosevelt letter to the Democratic Convention, July 18th, 1948. Members of the convention, in the century in which we live, the Democratic Party has received the support of the electorate. Only when the party, with absolute clarity, has been the champion of progressive and liberal policies and principles of government. When we lead with our values and have opportunity. Oh, that's not in the letter. No, he says when we lead with our values and we are the party of good jobs and everyone gets a fair shot if they're willing to work hard. (laughs) That's not what he said. That's not what FDR said. Did FDR say anything about a purity test? Oh, FDR doing his goddamn purity test. (laughs) That's FDR doing his goddamn purity test. (laughs) So he says uh, the Democratic Party only receives support when it's been the champion of progressive and liberal policies and principles in government. 
not privileges. The party has failed. This is FDR. The party has failed consistently when through political trading and chicanery, it has fallen into the control of those interests, personal and financial, which think in terms of dollars instead of in terms of human values. Holy crap, Ski. This guy sounds like Bernie Sanders sounds. This, this is exactly what Bernie Sanders had been saying. He said it right to, at the, to Debbie Wasserman Schultz's face All right. at that speech. We played it in the other video where he said when the, if the Democrats do not stimulate a high voter turnout and get people enthused, they will lose. That's exactly what happened. And this, and he's, and how do you get there? You offer them something that they deserve: health care, education, a fair tax structure, and a job that can get them in the middle class. If you can't do that, what is the point of having a country? What's the point of having a country if our country can't guarantee health care, education, and a job? The Republican Party has made its nominations this year at the dictation of those who, we all know, always place money ahead of human progress. So nothing's changed. The Democratic Convention, as appears clear from the events of today, is divided on this fundamental issue. So the party was divided back then, even when it had a strong leader like FDR. Until the Democratic Party, through this convention, makes overwhelmingly clear it stands in favor of social progress and liberalism and shakes off all the shackles of control fastened upon it by forces of conservatism, reaction, and appeasement, it will not continue its march of victory. Ron, is this not blowing your mind a little? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's uh, it's like he laid out a ground map that could have assured victory for a really, really long time, and uh, they sort of lost their way at some point. It's exactly, exactly the same thing that's yeah, happening right now. <laughs> oh, isn't it? And isn't it something? It was right after a huge economic crash brought on by that the stupid donor class. So here he is again, trying to say, hey. We have to be progressive policies, actually work for everyone. There's enough to go around in the richest country in the world. There's enough to go around. Rich people get to be super rich, and workers get to have a a comfortable living. That's what he's saying. And he's saying if you don't want to advocate for that, you're going to lose. I like the overwhelmingly clear part. Overwhelmingly clear. That's really important. The Democrats have to make it overwhelmingly clear. You know why? They have to do that because if they don't, they'll they they become victim to a demagogue, a charismatic demagogue like uh, Donatana Hans. That's exactly what happened because it wasn't overwhelmingly clear. In fact, it was clear the opposite. As they were trying to get working people to vote for them, Barack Obama was full throated, top of his lungs, trying to pass another job crushing trade deal. Why? Because it would benefit the fucking corporations and the donor class. That's why that TPP didn't do jack shit for anybody except rich people, corporations, and patent holders. In fact, it took all the power away from the regular people. It actually seems that when Donald Trump says, make America great again, he's referencing FDR's policies. Yes, that's what that, it, that does seem like that's what he's talking about. Because this is FDR did save capitalism. It is without question that certain political influences pledged to reaction in domestic affairs and to appeasement in foreign affairs have been busily engaged behind the scenes in the promotion of discord since this convention convened. Under these circumstances, I cannot, in all honor, and will not, merely for political expediency, go along with the cheap bargaining and political maneuvering which have brought about party dissension in this convention. Gets better. Hold on. He's getting ready. He's throwing it down. He's putting a line, putting a mark in the sand, a line in the sand, line in the sand. Line in the sand. It is not bet. It is best not to straddle ideals. Oh God. I love this guy. In these days of danger, When democracy must be more than vigilant, 
There can be no connivance with the kind of politics which has internally weakened nations abroad before the enemy has struck from without. It is best for America to have the fight out here and now. So he's calling for a fight. He's calling for a fight with those conservative Democrats. Let's do it, and let's do it now, and let's settle this shit for once and for all. I wish to give the Democratic Party the opportunity to make its historic decision clearly and without equivocation. Its decision on whether you're going to stand for the people or not. That party must go wholly one way or wholly the other. Amen. The whole thing with with all this and why it's so important to, like, evoke FDR right now, there is a time in politics, like anything else, there's a time to stand your ground and a time to compromise. We're in a stand your ground time. We're in a stand your ground time. And if you're going to disagree with that, you haven't been paying attention to any of this nation's history. You haven't been paying attention to what happened right before FDR happened. We're at a revolutionary time. So no, this isn't a time of compromise. And no matter how many baby boomers tell you that, they're wrong and it's not 1960 anymore. We're in a revolutionary time. Now's the time to stand our ground.